I want you to think about calling. Two things I want to emphasize in the short time that we have left. Calling and multiplied. When you think of calling, I want you to think about three things. These are not in your notes. Relationship, riches, and a road. When you read calling or called in Scripture, I want you to remember that you are first called to a spiritual relationship. Calling has to do with relationship. Don't ever forget that. God's plan is built around relationship. When you enter that relationship, you become the possessor of infinite riches. The relationship is by far most important, but with the relationship comes the riches. Those riches are yours for a purpose. They're designed for you to invest in eternity, and that's the road. The road is the plan of God for your life. Spiritual relationship, infinite riches, and an eternal road. Something God wants to do in your life that is going to have meaning and significance and glory. We were just singing glory. We don't even understand glory. We probably understand it maybe even less than we understand the love of God. Glory. Glory is a one-word summary of everything God is. Take the essence of God, the character of God, the majesty of God, the work of God, the love of God, the cross of Christ, put it all together, and what do you have? Well, you shoot forward into eternity, and a million years from tonight, those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to remember being here tonight, and we're going to have some understanding, not complete, but some understanding of what glory is all about. You know, when I was a kid, they kind of put into my mind the idea that heaven is where you go sit on a cloud and play a harp. I decided I'd almost rather go to the other place. Heaven is going to be ever new, ever changing. It's going to be time without time. And it's going to be the development of a spiritual relationship, the discovery of ever greater riches and involvement in a never-ending road of great purpose and great significance. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 22. I want to talk to you briefly about calling. Another way to say calling is election. Election is one of the most abused doctrines in the church today. If you want to look in your appendices, Appendix B, the doctrine of calling. I'm not going to cover all of it, but I am going to cover a few things. The doctrine of calling. Before I get to what I will add to your notes, because what I'm going to give you is not in your notes, I want to read you a story. It's a story about a hero and a maiden and a villain. Why is that? Because every great story must have those three elements. 
The whole story of history illustrates it. Jesus answered. I love this because what did he answer? The last verse of the previous chapter, when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet, and he answered them. He's talking to his enemies. Jesus answered and spoke to them. Who is them? The they who were trying to lay hands on him and the they who feared the multitude. He spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged, guess what? A marriage for his son. Relationship. They sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. The tragedy of human depravity and human sinfulness, human blindness and human hardness of heart. Verse 4 again, the long-suffering, the patience of God. This little parable covers all of Old Testament history. Again, he sent out other servants. We're talking about servants like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha. They kept going out saying, tell those who are invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle are killed, all things are ready, come to the wedding. They made light of it. They mocked him. Remember, who's he talking to? He's talking to people who wanted to kill him. He's talking to people who are afraid of the multitude. But they wanted to do away with him. They made light of it, and they went their way, each to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. The whole history of the prophets. When the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city, a prophecy of 70 A.D., the ultimate end of Israel at that time. The nation basically was scattered throughout the known world and ceased to exist. Then, very important word, it's a time word. It means in sequence. It means after these events. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. In other words, it is not based on your fittedness, your appropriateness, your capabilities, your good deeds, or anything else, the good and the bad. Of course, those who think they're good or bad. The wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there that did not have a wedding garment on. This is what troubles many people. Up until now, it's fine. The story is easily followed. The man did not have a wedding garment, so he said to him, friend, notice, very important word, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus defines election. Many are called, but few are chosen. You could also translate that many are invited, 
but few are choice. How do you select the choice from those that are not choice? Very simple. You let them sort themselves. Many are called, few are chosen. Before I get into explaining a couple of things in this passage, let's once again ask God to bless us by His Spirit. Father, as we open Your Word once again, there are hearts and souls seated here. There are those who may be following as we're streaming this message out without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. How I pray, Father, that something in the message will touch the heartstrings of those people, that their eyes will be opened, their ears will be willing to hear, their, their hearts will be made sensitive to the marvelous and wonderful, unexpected and undeserved invitation to enter into a relationship with you. And Father, for those who may be here as believers in Jesus Christ, and yet so busy with their business, so busy with the distractions of this life, that they are unable or unwilling to gather on a moment-by-moment -moment daily basis at the banquet table of your grace, won't you please give them a willingness to come as you call. For each and every one of us, lead us a little further in the plan and the purpose that you have for us, that Christ may be honored by our lives. For we pray it in his precious name. Amen. A couple of things I want you to get, and I've got to move very rapidly. Election is all about an invitation. It is all about a free will response, either to accept the invitation or reject it. Take that out of it and you lose all meaning of relationship. Relationship, particularly love relationship, must be entered voluntarily. Any man who sees a woman walking down the street and says, that's the one for me, and goes and grabs her and says, you're coming with me, you're now mine, has just violated everything that has to do with a romance. And the Christian story is a story of a romance. So we need to always bear that in mind, voluntary. Secondly, some chose not to, some responded. Those who responded are called chosen. They are choice. What was it Jude said? Called, sanctified, set apart, made special, becoming the treasure of God through faith in Jesus Christ, becoming an object of his love and affection beyond our ability to even comprehend. Thirdly, the part that troubles everyone. What about the guy that didn't have the wedding garment? I have heard this passage taught by good Bible teachers. Some will teach, not the good Bible teachers, some will teach that uh, this is a guy who thought he was a believer, but he really wasn't. Some will teach that he was a guy who became a believer, but lost his salvation. Totally wrong. Others will teach, and this terrifies me, that this is a true believer, but because their life wasn't good enough, when they get to heaven, they're not going to be near Christ. They're not going to be involved in what he's doing. They're really going to be on the outer fringes of the kingdom called outer darkness. Maybe you've heard of that teaching, the outer darkness teaching. 
The phrase outer darkness is only used three times, and I did a whole conference on this, and you can find it on our website if you want to check it out. It's only used three times in the New Testament, all three times in the book of Matthew. Matthew is a book that is an indictment against the nation of Israel. There is nothing about the church here. It's all about Israel. Does it apply to us? Absolutely. There are applications that we can make, but the church doesn't exist yet. He is speaking to his enemies and he is warning his enemies from the last verse of the previous chapter that there is coming a time when there's going to be a sorting of the wheat and the chaff. So the next question comes up, how then did he get into the wedding supper? Well, this actually happened. You know, sometimes prophecy and events mix and, and meet together. When the Lord Jesus met with the disciples, he did a preview of the wedding supper. In the preview of the wedding supper, he did what they normally did in a betrothal in a Jewish wedding. The young man would choose the young woman. He would ask her if she was, be usually it was through the fathers. The fathers would meet together with the young man and the young woman. The young man would say to the young woman, are you willing to be my bride? We're going to see examples of this in just a moment. She would say, I'll think about it. At the betrothal, there was a table. On the table was bread and wine. The young man would go through because Hebrew language and Hebrew thinking is very pictorial. And so they would often act things out, which is why we have so many things in Scripture that are acted out for us, portrayed for us. So the young man would take the bread, and the bread was a picture of life, and they never cut the bread. Even Southerners know you don't cut your bread, you break your bread. We call it breaking bread together. And the reason for that is when you break that bread, it has ragged edges. And what he's saying to her is, this bread represents life. I am going to break this bread. It has ragged edges. Are you willing to share with me the good and the bad? We often say in our wedding, for better or for worse. The young woman would then take the bread and eat the bread. That was step one of her response. That means at this point I'm still willing to consider being your bride. He would then take the cup and he would fill the cup, only one cup, and he would give the cup to the young woman. And if the young woman sat there for a few moments and poured the cup out, the wedding was off. I'm talking about Jewish ritual, Jewish practice. And so Jesus, in the upper room, acts out the betrothal, the engagement, the invitation to be his bride. He takes something that was already customary, the Passover feast, which went all the way back in the history of Israel to the exodus out of Egypt, and yet it was established there 1,500 years before Christ came for a reason. See, God is somehow very lucky. He's able to know what's going to happen, and he establishes ritual and practice and language that is going to be invested with great significance one day. And so Jesus, on the Passover, before he was crucified, takes bread and breaks the bread and says, take, eat, this is my body. 
He then takes the cup, one cup, and he hands it to the disciples and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. But there's something that he did before that that only John tells us about. He found somebody at the wedding feast that did not have a wedding garment. And that was Judas. And therefore he said to Judas, before he gave the cup, you remember he broke the bread and gave it and he said, what you're doing, do quickly. Judas went out and John ominously includes that phrase, and it was night. Why so ominous? Because if you went out at night at the first Passover, then the slayer, the avenger, the angel that was taking the life of the firstborn would take your life. If you went out and it was night, you went out into darkness and you went out into death. That's exactly what Judas did. Judas went out and it was night, but it was spiritual night. Then Jesus continues and his language is uh, beautiful because... He says there in John 14, I won't, we don't need to turn to it because you're all familiar with it, I am going to prepare a place for you. These words were spoken after the celebration of the Passover meal, of the betrothal meal. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again by the way he's coming. And he's close. We are getting very close to his coming if I come again, I will do what? I will come to where you are. No, the first reference, well, possibly the second. There's another passage that may be the first. I am coming and I will receive you to myself. That's a reference to the rapture of the church. In other words, the time of betrothal is over. The young man would come down the street with all of his friends and the bride would run out with her wedding dress to meet him and off they would go to the house he had prepared and then they would celebrate for seven days the wedding feast. But let me add one thing very quickly and I'm trying to cram a whole lot in here and I hope it's not so much that you're not getting it. This invitation... You're not included in this invitation. Did you know that? You're not included here in Matthew 22. They're inviting people to the wedding feast. You don't invite the bride to the wedding feast. The friends of the bridegroom and the friends of the bride are invited to come. The bride doesn't need an invitation. We as members of the church are the bride. We're the ones the wedding is about and there's no question that we're going to be there. Amen. And we're going to be dressed in robes of righteousness. If you look on page, what page is it here? Page 8 of your notes, Appendix B. There's a lot of information there about calling and election. And I mentioned under point 2, Jesus defining the meaning of election in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. But I just want to point you to this. I'm not going to go through it. You can certainly read it for yourself. I want to give you a few points that are not here. All right? Marriage terminology. Marriage terminology is used throughout the Bible. A romance needs a hero, a maiden, and a villain. 
God began the story of Israel by calling a hero. His name was Abraham. Abraham had a wife. She is the maiden. They have a problem. This is the enemy. She is barren. God is going to have to work a supernatural miracle to bring this son into the world. However, Sarah conceives, Isaac is born, they are thrilled. Here is the young man growing up and he's about 20, 20 possibly some suggest 25 years old. His father gets a strange message. Take now Isaac, your son, the only son whom you love. Take him to a mountain that I will show you and offer him to me there as a burnt offering. Has God ever asked you to do something that seemed completely contrary to everything that you ever thought was a part of his word or a part of his plan? I'm sure Abraham thought that. But here's the beauty of the story. I said earlier, names have meaning. Abraham. All you have to do is speak the name. Abraham. Abraham gets up early in the morning. I'm not going to read it. Genesis 22, you can read it for yourself. He gets up early in the morning. He is obedient. He is faithful. He is a servant of God. He cuts the wood. He gets the mule ready. He puts the wood on the mule. He has the knife. He has the components for the fire. He takes Isaac and two servants. They go to a mountain that God showed him. And what was that mountain? It was Mount Moriah where Jesus Christ 2,000 years later gave his life for you and I. God again was acting out what would become a reality in the person of his son. Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain. Isaac says, Father, here is the wood. Here is the fire. I see that you have the knife. Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham answers, God will provide himself a sacrifice, which he did 1,500 years later. Isaac now has a decision to make. He's 25 years old. His old man is, what, 115, 120, maybe 125? There's no way that that old man could put that young strapping son on that altar unless he volunteered to do what his father told him to do. That's Christ going to the cross for you and I. But now here's where it all leads. Isaac voluntarily lays down. God provides the ram caught in the thicket. Abraham offers the ram. And have you ever noticed that it's very specific in the record that Abraham and Isaac and two servants go to the mountain. Abraham and Isaac say, we will go yonder and worship and return to you. But when Abraham comes back down the mountain, he's alone. Isaac's not with him. What happened to him? He disappears from the story. Why does he disappear from the story? Because he has to picture the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Pardon me. When does Isaac come back into the record of Genesis? Two chapters later. And when is it? The unnamed servant, a picture of the Holy Spirit, is sent to find a bride for his son, and he goes and finds Rebekah, and he tells her about his master and all that he has and that he sent him to find a bride and so on and so forth. And you'll remember that the parents said, let's ask her if she's willing. You can't take that element out of it without violating the whole story. Do you remember what she said? I will go. 
She volunteers to go to meet a man she never met because the servant convinced them, the servant being a picture of the Holy Spirit, this is the plan of God. God sent me. God answered my prayer. God led me to you. She said, who am I to resist? And as they go back to Isaac, a strange thing happens. Here she's coming on the camels. And by the way, what did the servant give to her? A relationship, riches, and a road to follow. She said yes to the relationship. He puts earrings and bracelets of great value in her ears and on her wrists. And here they come on the camels, and who comes out to meet him? Isaac. That's his next appearance after Mount Moriah. Picture of the rapture of the church. The Lord coming to meet the bride who's coming out. Absolutely amazing. Turn with me to the Song of Solomon. This picture, this portrayal runs all the way through the Bible. But I'll just share a couple of little things, and again, I'll try to be quick. I'd love to read you all of the Song of Solomon, but the Song of Solomon is prophecy in history wrapped in doctrine. Prophecy in history wrapped in doctrine. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, the call, verse 10, My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. It's a, it's a picture of a beautiful time of spring. And everything's blossoming, and that's going to be what it's like when Jesus Christ comes for you and I. It's going to be a spring like we've never seen before. The time of singing has come. What do we read in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 up there in heaven? There is the bride in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's going on? Singing, 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 singing. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree spouts forth her green leaves, the vines with the tender grapes. The fig and the vine were always pictures in the Old Testament of the prosperity of God, the blessing of God on his people. The tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. Drop down to verse 16. Here's her response. The Shulamite woman, my beloved, is mine and I am his. What an amazing love story. Turn, if you will, to chapter 6. Uh, sorry, let's go to chapter 7. I've got several things marked here, but I don't have time for them all. Chapter 7. Verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Could I... Just pause long enough. You know, someone told me one time as a woman, she said, I, I find it very hard to identify as a son of God. I said, why is that? I have no problem identifying as the bride of Christ. She said, I never thought about that. She said, maybe I won't have a problem with it anymore. <clears throat> Be a pretty good idea. When you leave tonight, could you go home and find a quiet place and say this with conviction? I am my beloved's, 
and his desires for me. Do you have any idea how great is the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ for our surrender and our submission? And it all boils down to our willingness to trust that he knows what he's doing. God is working a magnificent plan in our time. We are in this generation for a reason. We are facing the problems we're facing in this nation for a reason. God is about to judge this earth. But Christ is coming for his bride. We need to be awake to that. We should be alert and vigilant and motivated like never before. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. What are you going to say? No, I don't think so. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine is budded, whether the grapes and the blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. Pomegranates, uh, if you know anything about natural health, pomegranates are like superfood, super, super healthy. Once again, they have a spiritual significance as a, as a symbol and as a picture of spiritual health in God's people. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance. At our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. And this is, how shall I say it? Wedding night language. This is love-making language. The mandrakes were love potions. They were seen as sexual stimulants. In other words, we are finally together and the wedding is about to be consummated. It's the beauty of the language. Well, I could go on and on. Matthew 26, next passage you might want to write down, verses 26 through 29, Jesus with the disciples in the upper room. Judas has already been ejected, the guy that came in without a wedding garment. He's not a believer. And then Jesus gathers with those disciples in the shadow of the cross, about to pay the penalty for the sins of the entire world. And his heart is just overflowing with love for those that, that ragged little band of disciples, and he knows what they're going to go through. He knows the doubt. He knows the fear. He knows the questions that are going to plague them. And what does he do? He uses wedding terminology. This bread is my body. This cup is my blood. As he initiates from the Passover the Lord's table. We could go on and on. I could take you through many, many passages in the Old Testament. Consider 1 Samuel chapter 25 when David meets Abigail. Abigail is married to a horrible man named Nabal. He is a tyrant. He's abusive. He's a fool. And yet she is faithful. She is loyal. But for nothing. She speaks to David, counsels David, exhorts and encourages David not to go and kill Nabal. David accepts her counsel, calls her a wise woman, pulls back, and then the Lord strikes Nabal. After which David sends for Abigail to become his bride. How does Paul say it in Romans 7? It's a perfect illustration. We were once married to the law. And the law tyrannized us. The law brutalized us. Why? 
because the law cannot accomplish the plan of God because of the weakness of our flesh. We were enslaved to the law. But then we died to the law through the body of Christ. You say, how did I die by the law? <clears throat> die to the law, very simple. Christ did it for you. He died in your place. He paid the penalty for all of our violation of the law and his perfect obedience to the law became his wedding gift to you and I. The righteousness of Christ imputed to the believer. And therefore, having been set free, Paul says, we become servants of righteousness to God. Over and over and over again, we see this. Well, how time flies. Turn with me back to Jude. I'll touch on something. We'll cover it more in detail tomorrow. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. You know, God is a great mathematician. He should be. He invented it. When you and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He subtracts all our sin. It's blotted from the record. All your sins, past, present, and as long as you live, every sin, every sin of thought, of word, of deed, it was all blotted out. See, it's a wonderful thing that God is not subject to time. He already knows every failure, every lie, every evil thought, every sinful deed. He knew it all because 2,000 years ago, He took all of it and He laid it on Jesus Christ at the cross. And therefore, he blots it all out and he says, their sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. That's subtraction. Then he does addition. He not only applies to you and I the righteousness of the life of Jesus Christ. See, his life from birth until crucifixion, where he lived a life without sin and a life that fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law, was not just his perfection. It was not just him being the perfect man. It was lived for you and I. What did he have in mind all those times that he struggled? The scripture tells us, does it not, that he was tempted in all points like we are and yet without sin. You know why? He had you in mind. He had me in mind. He was saving up his wedding gift. And his wedding gift was his righteousness added to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His mercy has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 is one verse that tries to capture it, but our minds can't contain it. Every spiritual blessing, not just the righteousness of Christ, as if that wouldn't be enough. Every spiritual blessing that accrues to the righteousness of Christ on our behalf, which includes the five works of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, which I don't have time to cover. 
which includes the 40 or more things that are given to you at the moment of salvation listed in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, which includes all of the glories of eternity forever and ever, and ever-expanding, ever-changing, ever-renewing experience in relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul is not kidding when he says in Ephesians 2, 7, that throughout all of the ages to come, he might continue to display and manifest the greatness of his grace to us in Christ Jesus. You think heaven is always going to be the same? You're going to be sitting on a cloud strumming that harp for the rest of eternity? No way. Every day will be new. You say, wait a minute, there won't be days in eternity. Oh, yes, there will. They'll be different than days that we know and understand. How do I know there will be days? Because there are going to be weeks and there are going to be months. And how do I know that those are going to be there? Because in the book of Revelation, when you have the new heaven and the new earth and you have the river of life coming from the throne of God, on each side of the river of life is the tree of life with 12 different fruits for what? 12 different months of the year. Wait a minute, you say, we're in eternity. That's right, but we've still got 12 months. 12 months means... Months of four weeks. Four weeks means weeks of seven days. Days mean hours. Hours mean seconds. Can you mingle somehow time and eternity? I don't know how you can do it, but I'm pretty sure God will be able to do it without any problem. Won't it be wonderful to have days and time passing without getting old? How wonderful will that be? So if God is able to subtract and add, he's also able to multiply, and he expresses it here as a wish, and I'm going to leave this with you tonight. God wants more for you than what you've allowed him to give you at this point. You say, I'm saved by grace, yes, but he would like grace to be multiplied. I have received his mercy, yes, but he would like that mercy to be greater. I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful. He would like you to understand peace to a much greater depth than you do at this point. I know the love of God through Christ. That's wonderful. He would like it to be multiplied, not just added, not just one on the other on the other, but multiplied. If I add 5 and 5, I've got 10. If I multiply 5 times 5, I've got 25. Start moving that up into hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, trillions. I'm afraid our government will find out what comes after a trillion. <laughs> Do you know that our nation is now 33 trillion in debt? <clears throat> Do you know how much a trillion is? A trillion seconds. How far back in history would you have to go to back up a trillion seconds? A trillion seconds. We're just talking seconds. 32,000 years. Seconds. One trillion. We're in debt. 33 trillion. I hate to tell you, this nation is bankrupt. This nation is being invaded. Our economy is being destroyed, and it's all on purpose. Amen. It's all on purpose. Now that may cause you fear, but fear not. Because God designed us to live in this time victorious. And if there's one thing Jude 
prays and labors for in this book is for you and I to contend earnestly for the faith. And contending earnestly is not being a loser. It is not being fearful. It is not being defeated. It is not being overwhelmed. It is victorious contending. You say, how can I do that? We'll talk about that tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. It's a never-ending source of illumination, of hope, of comfort, of encouragement, of strength in the dark and difficult times in which we live. Father, let us never become preoccupied with what the enemy is doing because the deeds of the enemy are already defeated. Help us to become preoccupied with the victory that is ours through Christ. Help us to live valiantly. Help us to live victoriously through faith in your word as we allow you to multiply your mercy, your peace, and your love in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night. Rest well. See you tomorrow.